0: God said to David, do you hear that drumming? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You got a great big Philistine army coming.
1: Are you
0: serious? I can handle this.
1: Welcome to Line Noise, a podcast about electronic music. I'm Philip Sherburne,
2: And I'm Ben Cardew.
1: Today, we're going to be talking with Gray Philistine, an American musician based here in Barcelona, who visited the so-called jungle in Calais, France, not long ago, where refugees and migrants are camped out, waiting for their chance to enter the UK. Um, Gray, thanks for being here with us today.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Tell us about your, your trip to, to Calais. How did you end up going there in the first place? Were you invited, or did you just strike out on your own?
0: Yeah, we were invited. When I say we, I'm normally I'm, I'm performing with my, my other half, which is Nova. She, she sings and plays a lot of instruments in Philistine, so I'm kind of speaking for both of us here. Um, we were invited by a woman named Severin, who normally lives in Barcelona. She's French, but has been living in, in, the, in Calais, working with people in the jungle camp for the last six, eight months. She's doing a photography project with them. kind of doing a, It's called Jungle Eyes. And teaches them uh, how to do documentary photograph about their own situation, and then publish that work. So she's been there and was trying to think of some way to invite us and and perhaps a workshop, perhaps some kind of a, some kind of context to invite Philistine to do something. And we talked over the different options, and she we basically came to the conclusion the best thing to do is just perform because people don't have anything to do outside of their tent there. Yeah.
1: And so you went over in in December,
0: correct? Yeah, end of December
1: and what were i mean first of all maybe tell us a little bit about your your performance what did you do there and what what was the the scenario like
0: well the the space is a place uh is a dome like a metal and plastic you know improvised kind of dome that is it's called good chance calais it's actually run by some uk people who made it as a kind of culture center for the camp uh what they've done mostly there's theater, um, very small like gigs by the camp musicians. This is the first time that they brought in a big sound system, and did a, a performance by outside people. Um, and they uh, they have this kind of regular programming in the early evening or the daytime where they do workshops on art and things. And and so it was it was kind of up to and She put it together, found this, made made found us the space, and connected all these three things together.
1: Yeah. And what kind of set did you do? I mean, was it the the, the, the a normal philistine set
0: yeah exactly a normal philistine set which means um there is uh a shopping cart involved there are visuals projected onto three different screens there's uh rap and singing in four or five different languages and there there's all kind of banging on drums and instruments yeah
1: let's maybe pause and and take a listen to some of philistine's work right now and we'll be back in a second you said um, your your music utilizes different languages um, and and different kind of musical traditions what what was the impact of that there in the jungle i mean were were there were you using languages that the people there spoke i mean were, was there sort of a recognition
0: so nova sings in a few different languages none of which are particularly the languages that the people who are there uh but there, there's something that they could definitely understand about our, our presentation, the way we put ourselves on the stage and present ourselves both through the the languages or having like, let's just say like a woman of color doing the singing um, and that they could they could understand kind of the feeling she was transmitting. She's also a Muslim and most many of them are Muslim uh, and the the visuals the that we use in a live context that. Uh, there's a song that speaks about the Arab Spring, the uprising, there's, there's, uh, there's sections that, that uh, show visuals of borders, frontiers, uh, walls, um, passports, uh, documentation, like we're, we're, it's kind of an obsession of ours, frontiers. So when, when our visuals were showing, people were cheering a lot and really paying attention, really focusing on what we were doing.
1: I, I meant to ask you, what was the response to your performance like? Um, did you have a sense of, of how people reacted?
0: Yeah, definitely. The, there was no doubt about it. It was really, really intense. I'd have to say it's probably one of the most intense gigs of my life. And, and, and I play a lot in a lot of different circumstances, from fancy art museums to squats. I've, I've done plenty of everything. And, uh, and I'd have to say this is definitely the, the most t- intense one because of the response, the focus. First of all, there was so many people crammed in that dome, That they were they were literally standing on what we might call the stage, which was just some pallets. Like we were raised up, say like 20 centimeters on some pallets. But however small that space was, people were crammed up there with us. Like there was people next to me. I almost had to push people with my elbow to play the drum pads. Um, There was one kid right behind me who had a a pad out and a pen and was taking notes looking at Ableton and trying to figure out what I was doing. He was like doing his kind of own journalism or maybe he was interested in electronic music. I'm not sure but I mean, just right behind me over my shoulder, the whole gig, you know? Um, so there was a few hundred people in a small space. They're really focused, really respectful and energetic.
1: I, I, from the, the article I read about the performance in Thump, um, I read that there was sort of a mishap towards the end. Um, can, can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, it was just a little bit of, um, it was a, it was an error on our part because we've we created this currency. It's kind of like a post capitalist utopian currency. It's called loot, and it's something that we regularly throw out in the air at the end of our gigs. We always go down to the floor, and we play drums, uh, play like snare drum and tom and stuff on the floor, and we do one last song in the crowd. And and normally at the beginning or the end of that, if we have enough of it with us, we'll we'll chuck a bunch of this loot in the air. Um, we didn't have. We, we should have had a chance to talk over this gig before we started, but we didn't, because something there was a mishap at the beginning, too, where everyone rushed in, we couldn't keep people out, and we had to start playing with only half the sound system set up, because people were really impatient, because they had to later go out and try to jump the walls and climb under lorries and all that, so they had a certain amount of time that they could enjoy the gig, and then they had to go get to work. Um, so, so everyone ran in. We had to start right away. You know, with, We were really stressed out, and we just had to go. So we had no chance to talk out, like, how are we going to modify this gig from, say, the gig we did last weekend, in which we probably would have thought, don't throw loot in the air. We're in a tightly crammed space with a bunch of people who are desperately poor and, and on the edge of disaster. And if we throw something that looks like money in the air in a place where they don't know what a lot of money looks like yet, that right. they don't know it we're could not have pounds, yeah, pounds sterling in the air. I mean, for all that matter, all that became obvious the minute it was in the air and a total, like, scrum panic happened. And we were all, like, getting crushed. Our, inst- our drums were getting all thrown in the air, and it was it was pretty mad. But then it calmed down. People were like, okay, cool. They calmed down, and uh, everyone was was cool after that. It was just, uh, it was just a momentary.
1: Did you explain yeah. what loot is or isn't at that point? Well,
0: some of them were confused. They were holding it up, like, what is this? What is this? and and then a lot of other a lot of the other guys were were laughing a lot like hey you just played a funny joke you know you almost caused a riot for counterfeit money like they thought it was something clever and i was like well that's thanks for being so generous we we weren't trying to be so clever we just did something that is appropriate in another context but not here yeah
1: you were recently in paris for the the climate change talks and and doing some some performance and activism there as well right yeah and what, what what do you do there
0: well, what I did there is something called the Sound Swarm. This is the th- maybe the third or fourth time I've done this thing. It's um, it's taking, to some degree, the idea of the Infernal Noise Brigade, which is my previous project, which is a marching band that was used for soundtracking live protests, and, and making it go electronic, really. So instead of having drums, you have megaphones and loudspeakers and boomboxes. And instead of having rhythms, you have sound collages, noises. So in this case, we were using a lot of... Um, you know, music concrete sounds, like sounds of animals, cracking ice, glaciers, climate change, weather, um, pitched, modified, chopped up, slurred into into sound art, basically, that was being broadcast at extremely high volumes on the streets.
1: And what, what was the response to that? I mean, what was the scenario? What, was this in the middle of a demonstration? Um, were you kind of on your own? I mean... How,
0: well, we had a, we had some ambitious plans that we almost canceled the whole thing because, as you know, on the 13th of November, there was, a, there was a terror attack in Paris, and the government suspended all rights to have any kind of a manifestation, any kind of a protest of any kind. So we had plans to go there with the sound swarm and do a whole bunch of different actions in different places— to go to places like the American Chamber of Commerce and invade the space and play our speakers inside because they're really uh, anti-climate change. They're, they're what are called skeptics, which we can call idiots. Um, so we had a number of, let's say, um, targets, places that we were planning to go with our sound, that we planned to, to, to go to our sound and, and disappear before we could get in too much trouble. But we would have ended up in jail immediately. So what we did instead was make the sound in, in one demonstration. Um, that was kind of semi allowed. It wasn't officially permitted because it was it was still illegal. But the idea was that okay, there's a truce with the police for this one day, and we went to the uh, Saudi Arabian embassy and we walked back and forth with our speakers, and there we played with a lot of uh, whip sounds. Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> was there? I mean, was there a visible response there? Or I mean, did anybody come no, out? No, no. And... It's like no. a it's like a fortress.
0: Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah.
1: I, I was curious, and and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But have you ever been arrested at doing these things?
0: Yes. Yeah, more than once. More than once. Yeah. Yeah, but these we're talking about really small charges. And in fact, the the most serious arrest I ever faced for doing these kind of political sound works, uh, ended up in a lawsuit against the New York Police Department and it was probably the
2: best paid hours of my life.
1: Ben, did you have any questions for Greg?
2: Um those a couple of things I particularly wanted to ask. Um, we were just talking about US politics, and um, one of the things we've just been looking at is your uh, Donald Trump video. What was the thinking behind that? I mean, can you explain what it was and um, why you decided to do it? Okay, this is
0: this, making that Donald Trump video, um, it reminded me of the Bush years, when sometimes I would just get inspired by something and had to do it. Even though I had tons of work to do that night, I should have been sleeping, I was up till five in the morning. I just suddenly dropped everything, all the deadlines, everything I had to do by the next day, and just just saw that video and was like, I have to do something with this. And I thought, well, the music is like kind of a rip off of Blondie. Really, it's basically it's a Blondie song redone with a Casio and these these girls. It's these uh, patriotic girls singing and dancing. You kind of have to see it to understand it. So you just have to get on the internet and look up Freedom Kids, I think is their name. So they have their version, and I thought, well, I'll just make the Blondie explicit. And so I, you know, I I put the Blondie actually on swapped out the the beats for that and then went into um was it sir a lot i like big butts uh but i kept it pretty clean just used a few like a few bars where he doesn't you know get too sexual and then into some electrochabi from egypt and that, that's right when the crowd behind the girls is clapping along and there's this clap in the electrochabi, and it just it just made me laugh a lot i was having a great time yeah so there's not there's not a really a deep th- piece of theory behind this i just it's just having a great time and and poking fun at something that was clearly ridiculous.
2: And it's a great video, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And what do you think, finally? I mean, you obviously use music um, to very interesting ends. Um, I see you as very far from, you know, a producer that that makes a track just to make people dance in in a club or something like that. What do you think about the power of electronic music? Um, What can it do? What kind of power can it have how can electronic music be used in different ways to kind of bring about change or to, or to make a point what, what do you think about that you know
0: i'm often a critic of like of the kind of lack of ideas in electronic music big ideas big ideas that change the world it's it's there sometimes but we are talking about a music that's largely instrumental so it's we can uh we can be Forgiven for, not, for electronic music Not being an explicitly political form of art um, I think in other, The other ways that, that Say the electronic music culture can express itself Is how do we organize ourselves How do we interact with each other Which kind of things do we promote and share And which kind of platforms do we use That's how we can express a, a good kind of politics In electronic music
1: well, and my understanding is that you, I mean, most of your work happens outside of the usual infrastructure, right? I mean, you're not playing in the usual nightclubs. Um, in fact, I, my first memory of you, encountering you, was at Mutech probably 15 years ago, and you were outside of one of the official Mutech performances with your shopping cart and megaphones. Maybe wearing a, like a Guantanamo jumpsuit? Am I imagining yeah,
0: that? Yeah, you're, you're not imagining it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As,
1: I mean, and... and uh, do you remember what the what motivated you then?
0: Well, at the time, I was just really upset about Guantanamo Bay, and was going to bring that wherever wherever I could. And I was just starting out with with electronic music production at the time, so it was a matter for me to to make some collages, some concrete sounds, not too dissimilar from the sound form really, but just just one person instead of a big group. And uh, and Mutech was. I thought, well, here's here's a perfectly interesting electronic music festival. I'd like to visit it. I'd like to go to it and check out some of the artists. But I'd like like to also contribute something, even if it's from the outside.
1: Here in Barcelona, I mean, Barcelona is well known for for its electronic music scene, for you know, whether we're talking about sonar or whether we're talking about clubs like Nizza um, and the Moog, um, Lapsus Festival my understanding is that you're tapped into a musical community maybe a more grassroots musical community that that i don't know a lot about i mean you you sometimes email me about like rooftop events that you're doing what what's happening here um on a musical level maybe not just purely electronic but that that most people don't really know
0: about well barcelona is a tough place for music because there there's a real lack of spaces it has a lot to do with architecture how People always live above uh, commercial spaces, so we have, this, we have this problem with sound. It's just kind of how the city is built. So there isn't a lot of space for music, small, independent music, to happen. Um, so people often turn to really alternative kinds of spaces or really small kinds of concerts. For instance, this, I've done a series of rooftop concerts. Uh, there, there is a very interesting underground of all kinds of music percolating here. But it is increasingly hard to find. It's because there are a few big venues, Apollo and and Rasmataz, which do their thing. You know, five hundred, thousand, thousands of people in many cases. But there isn't a, a lot of spaces for one hundred, not two hundred people. And, and in fact, there's a place called Elio Global in in Gracia that's just just been shut down. And even though they've been it's doing been gigs. shut down. I didn't yeah, know they've that. they've been shut down for gigs, even though they've been doing them and won awards for that from the government for like fifteen years. But the yeah, they just had a lot of problems with the police, and they've stopped their music programming. Um, which is, you know, I'm I'm not being pessimistic. All I'm saying is that there's, although there is music, interesting music going on here. It's 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 really tricky to find it.
1: What do you have um, coming up next? Are you going to be? You, you just came off a pretty long tour, I think. Are you going to be traveling again? Or are you working on new music? What 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 are you doing?
0: What I'm up to right now is. I do leave in five days. I go to Asia for two months and I'll be back for a few weeks and I'll go to the Americas for a few months. So I don't get to spend as much time here as I would like. Right now I'd just like to to hibernate and, and get some production work done, but I'm gonna have to finish it on the road. Um, because we have a lot coming this year. This is a this is kind of a big year for Philistine and um, I know that every artist wants to say that every year, but we I've I've been I've been very focused on touring and performing for the last few years and this is the year of actually putting new stuff out. And the one thing I've had a, a problem with is like the idea of an, an album. I really love making albums, complete albums that you listen to in a succession of tracks and they come in a format and you make this beautiful art for it and people can cherish it and bring it home. But the world is no longer like that. So if the world no longer needs albums, then, then what do we, exactly do we make? And why do we still make album length things if we don't have vinyls or cassettes or something to limit the length to make it a certain period of time? So I thought if if there's anything I want to make, it's uh, it's a series of video audiovisual singles. So video song, there's four of them. They come out quarterly, and it's called Abandon. All of them follow a similar uh, theme, a, thim- a similar script. It's like a repeating dream, and although it's different music, in a different context, each one features a dancer that goes through a transformation from work to soul.
1: All right, we'll link that from our from our uh, homepage. Great this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, coming and talking to
0: us today. Cool, thank you. Thank you. Yeah.
2: So that was minor, a new track from Philistine that's going to be out soon.
1: Ben, you wrote about shoegaze recently for the Quietus, um, specifically the, the death of shoegaze. Um, the occasion was a new box set um, dedicated to the to the genre, and I was I was curious what um, what your take on on shoegaze and its and its disappearance was.
2: Well, the great thing about this um, box set. Um, And I'm not sure if they necessarily intended this, but for me, it's over five CDs and it really traces the birth, the glory period, and then the death of shoegazing. I said I'm not sure they intended this, but the last couple of CDs are a bit of a slog. I mean, there's some great music on them, um, but you get into a period where there's a lot of bands just doing the same thing and it's you know mumbled vocals and really fuzzy guitars and I found that a bit, as I said, a bit of a slog, but also it kind of made more sense because, you know, there was a reason shoegazing died, and for me, one of the reasons was that it it just became became this kind of uh, formula that a lot of people were repeating. Um, but one of the things that really interested me is, among all of this, um, there's a track by Seafield um, called "Plain Song" from their uh, "Plain Song" EP in 1993. And it's this sort of mix of shoegazing and um, IDM, for want of a better word. It's sort of um, a really beautiful piece of music, uh, mixing electronics with guitars. And it just made me think, what if? You know? Because at, around about that time, 1993, there were uh, a number of releases uh, that mixed shoegazing with electronic music production. Seafill, for example, um, there was also uh, Global Communication. They remixed in its entirety Chapter House's second album, Blood Music, um, and created their own album, essentially, um, which is a brilliant piece of music. It's you know it's sort of prime Global Communication time, um, and it's absolutely incredible. Uh, and also um, Global Communication as Reload uh, remixed uh, a slow-dive song called In mind, which is similarly beautiful. It just made me think it was this sort of really miniature micro niche of shoegazing IDM that listening back to it now is some fantastic music, and it just makes me think I wish. I wish it had gone on a bit longer. I wish there had been a few more examples.
1: Let's listen to a a clip of Seafield's plain song right now. I wanted to ask you about um, shoegaze. It's funny because it's one of those genres that I hear the word and I instantly can summon up in my mind kind of a, a mental image of, of, of what it sounds like. I mean, it's the, the sort of the kind of breakbeat style rhythm, the swirly guitars, the swirly vocals, basically a, a whole lot of swirl. Um, but you also, in your piece, you traced it back to the Cocteau Twins and the Jesus and Mary chain. I was wondering at what point do you feel like shoegaze kind of began to, to codify and become, let's say, a collection of tropes rather than, uh, you know, a sense of possibility?
2: I think it was around about 1991, 92. Um, like you get this moment in sort of 1991, which is on the box set when uh, you get the first record by Ride and the first record by Lush and the first record by House and people like that who would go on to become the biggest names. Um and you can see they've kind of got a few things uh in common, but at the same time, you know, they're very much their own bands. And then as it goes on the next kind of few years it starts to become uh more codified. But one thing that really struck me listening to it, particularly listening to the um the chapter house track they got Falling Down, was actually this is quite futuristic music. Like the, the Chapter House track um has a break bit on it. Um and I I sort of always dismissed Chapter House vaguely. Um but listening back it's fantastic. Like in 2016 it sounds like futuristic guitar music. Um this track from I think 1991 which I'd sort of dismissed at the time and it it, made, it, it was it was um quite a realization. Yeah, you wrote
1: it's one of those strange quirks of fate that shoegazing probably sounds more futuristic in 2016 than it did in 1991, which I thought was an interesting uh, an interesting point to make. It, seems kind of backwards almost, but...
2: True, but um, I think the point I was was making was that if you look, for example, at those early um, My Bloody Valentine records, if you look at um, Happy Mondays records, Stone Roses, that kind of thing, there was a real embrace of electronic music production. So, um, funnily enough, by 1991, using a breakbeat under a guitar track seemed retro it seemed like you were just delving back into what the happy mondays or the, or the stone roses had done um whereas today where there are not so many bands who do that kind of thing who i mean i know there are examples but who combine uh, electronic music production with guitar pop songs that's why it sounds more futuristic today
1: yeah in a way the the fusion of electronic music and, and guitar pop has become sort of so normalized that it doesn't draw attention to itself anymore. I think of it's not Mumford and Sons, but um, who's that band that played with Kendrick at the Grammys? I think it was last year. The they, they looked like Stomp out there, like banging
2: on their drums. It's uh, got to be Mumford and Sons, hasn't it? No, no, it, it wasn't like Mumford Stomp? and
1: Sons. Oh, oh, I'm not going
2: to remember it, but
1: but anyway, that you know, they're these real guitarish bands that use, I mean, more production than you know, than most of the dance music we listen to, but it doesn't draw attention to the electronic aspects of the production. It's this sort of naturalized.
2: Exactly. I mean, even Coldplay had a few uh, recent moments uh, of electronic music production. Um, And another sort of interesting footnote to all this is um, shoegazing died a death and went away, um, sort of mid-90s. And it was sort of revived in the early 2000s by electronic music acts. I'm thinking particularly of Ul- Ulrich Schnauss, um, who produced a couple of incredibly good LPs. Um, that by, He was an electronic music producer making what sounded like shoegaze, making really burning music. And also uh, More Music, the, the um, German label, produced a slow-dive tribute album called Blue Skyed and Clear with kind of electronic acts uh, covering... Uh, slow-dive songs. And so it it was like this this weird, tiny micro-niche that had gone away was suddenly revived in in the early 2000s for little or no reason that I could work out.
1: Yeah, the Ulbricht-Schnau stuff is beautiful, although I also wonder if maybe he kind of points to the limitations of the genre as well, because his... uh, I don't know how many albums he did... But my feeling was there were sort of diminishing returns there after a few really gorgeous albums. I I felt like I didn't need to hear any more of Ulrich Schnauss' records, and I think it's because he kind of got stuck in... In in my memory, he even moved more from the electronics towards a sort of a version incorporating more guitars and almost more of an authentic shoegaze sound. I
2: think he joined a band, actually. That could be. Uh, He joined a sort of shoegazing... Uh, you know, actual real live guitars and drums band and um, and, and sort of went on from there. Um, but I, I wanted to ask, because uh, we were talking about this earlier, and you said Seafield, one of your favourite bands.
1: Yeah, I love um, that you mentioned Seafield.
2: What is it about them you like so much?
1: Well, I, I would have discovered Seafield in the mid-90s, kind of when I was discovering electronic music for the first time through... Um, Apex Twin selected Ambient Works Volume 2 through the Musique remix of the Autours, which was weirdly one of the first kind of electronic records I ever had, which is a, a weird one to have. Um, Portishead, things like that. I, I stumbled upon Seafield probably because they were on, on Warp. And, um, well, there were the two Pure records, and the one that really got me was um, Sucour, the beautiful kind of burgundy-colored um, album sleeve which to me is the height of their ambient dub kind of leanings. Um, it's shoegazy, but it's 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 to me, it's more of a post rock ambient dub kind of thing. and i I just loved it for its um, it's melancholy, It's sound design. It's so spacious and and wide open. Um, it's basically just um, like very rudimentary drum drum machine program programming run through. Cavernous reverb with some kind of wispy vocals over the top um, and some synths and bass and guitar. And it's just, um, it still gives me shivers to this day. To me, It sounds a lot like early Cocteau twins kind of submerged in a fish tank.
2: Do you see Seafield as being a very unique act, um, a one off, uh, or do you sort of think they sound like other bands around at the time?
1: No, I, I don't think there was any. Was ever anybody quite like Seafield? I mean, then or or since then. It, I mean, they. I think one of the reasons I gravitated to them so much was was for the fact that nobody else really sounded like them. That 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 they kind of tapped a a sound and a vibe that I that really resonated with me that nobody else had ever articulated in in the same way before. I mean, you could say, you know, y- there were some parallels with Cocteau Twins, and I think at some point. Seafield remixed the Cocteau Twins I, I think or I Mark think Clifford so. there, Something there like was that, some yeah. um, you know and um, Mark Van Hoen had some kind of crossover there but for the most part they were really doing their own thing and uh, I, I wish they would they would do more of it
2: one wish that I very much had in listening back to these these records just the other day when I was thinking about this was um, the uh, slow dive track that I mentioned before uh, that was uh, remixed by Global Communication track called In Mind um, whereas the Chapter House album very much tears apart, sorry, yeah, the Chapter House album is basically torn apart by Global Communication I mean there's recognisable elements but not really um, the slow dive single that Global Communication remixed actually uses the vocals and I just remember thinking what would it be like if Global Communication had produced a slow dive album you know, that would have been a fantastic piece of music I think let's it, listen to that
1: Ben, you and I have both been listening to the new Moody Man mix on uh, the DJ Kicks mix on on K7. What's your impression of the mix?
2: I really like it. I mean, I'm a big fan of Moody Man. Um, And when this pinged into my inbox, I was really excited, genuinely excited to see he was doing uh, this mix CD. Um, Because he's, although he does DJ quite a lot, he's probably more known as a producer. And I was very interested to see what he would come up with. And in fact, what he came up with was pretty odd, in a very good way.
1: Were you surprised when you put it on?
2: Well, totally, because, you know, you think Moody Man, you think House and Techno, pretty much.
1: And Soul, Uh, as well.
2: Yeah, true. And the first, say, half an hour, roughly, is quite down-tempo tracks, like things from Jaipur, Nightmares on Wax, Flying Lotus, that kind of thing. Um, And then it sort of gets going into a bit of house, a disco and you think okay okay i know i I know what's coming here and uh it turns out you don't because he just mixes into a jose gonzalez track and not a remix a jose gonzalez track just
1: him and the guitar
2: exactly and it's a really sort of brave can we say that a really clever thing to do because it really makes a, a break in the mix um and it works really really well and then he builds it all back again and you're just thinking, okay, right now we're going to have house and house beats to the end or whatever. And um, this Anne Clark track comes in. And it's all sort of pianos, no beats. It's 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 a very uh, strange moments.
1: Yeah, and it's not—it's not an Anne Clark uh, track that I know. I can't figure out. I mean, it's—it's it's Our Darkness, right, which is a, a super well-known right. song, but it's not a version that I know. If—if if, if I'm not totally mistaken, normally that it has synthesizers, and, and this one is her and a piano. I don't know what which version that is, but it's—it's it's really odd and and interesting in that, especially as you say in that point in the mix.
2: Exactly, and it made me think maybe this is—is is, this is the kind of mix that a producer makes rather than a DJ. That uh, he's not just wedded to something that's going to make people dance for an hour and a half. He actually kind of thinks about different ways in which uh, these songs fit together. And and I think that's a very refreshing thing to hear. I was really
1: interested in the technique that he uses in the mix, or in some ways the lack of technique. I mean, I it's not... Um some of the tracks are just you know they sort of fade in and they fade out they're not like intricately beat matched or blended um, they're they're really more juxtaposed than anything especially early in the mix and and i thought that was really interesting i mean you hear about you know the 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 difference between a selector and a Dj or you know what's more important track selection or skills and obviously i'm not saying the moody man doesn't have skills because he has skills but he, he doesn't he's not worried about just like here's a track that I like and I'm going to give you maybe 32 bars of it or 64 bars of it and then I'll just kind of fade out and change course I mean it really it's a mix that kind of it wanders a lot you know it kind of it, it kind of meanders like a river
2: it really does and um the first in fact only time I saw Moody Man DJ um it was 1998 I think and I remember it was a bit like that. You know, his, his, his beat matching was, was fine, but it was nothing, you know, particularly flashy or whatever. And the moment that really sticks out uh, in my mind is when he suddenly played Now That We Found Love by Third World. And it was just the perfect song to hear at that time. You know, in this sort of dingy Parisian club, probably best known at Rex, in fact, probably best known for techno. And to hear that kind of bit of reggae soul was was just fantastic.
1: I think all of those... Detroit guys um i mean one of the things that they do best is as DJs is to surprise i mean to really s- seduce and surprise dance floors i remember seeing Andres who's going to be playing here in barcelona with moody man very shortly um andres who also records on um, mahogany music and he was playing in an open air in barcelona a few years ago and he ended up mixing uh his if i'm not mistaken it was his big tune new for you uh, which was the like the big tune that year with Nirvana smells like teen spirit <laughs> and essentially doing a mashup of the two
2: I cannot imagine that
1: You really can't
2: and it, was it good
1: uh, I mean it worked <laughs> it like I can't say that it didn't work I can't say it's not a thing that I would want to I wouldn't want anybody else to do it certainly right. but there in the moment and I don't know it worked it was like wow he's he's playing smells like teen spirit mashed up with his own track and somehow it works. And it wasn't just like a... You know, he, he kind of rode that mix for a while. And I, I admired the audacity of it. And I, I enjoyed it. You know, I mean, it stuck with me. Do, how many well, it, mixes yeah. over the years have, have do I remember? You know, not a lot. But that's one that stuck with me.
2: The other thing that really got me thinking about this Moody Man mix was... um It's a great mix. And I would recommend anyone to go and buy it. But that said... Who buys mix CDs these days? I I hate to say it, but... Because, again, I think...
1: um, Well, who buys any CDs these days?
2: True, but particularly mix CDs. I mean, for example, Moody Man. um, I was thinking about this, and I looked onto my hard drive, and I've got two Moody Man mixes. One's an hour-long one, one's two hours long already. And how many DJs are there out there that you can't find a mix on SoundCloud or MixCloud or or, or whatever? Um, And, as I say, I, I... I really hope people do buy this Moody Man mix CD, but I was just thinking, will they? You know, do people still buy mix CDs?
1: Well, I think I mean Ostkutone from Bergheim and Panorama Bar they they stopped they stopped um, retailing their mix CDs, right? I mean, now they they offer them as as free downloads, if I'm not mistaken, probably out of a recognition that of the fact that people don't buy mixes anymore, they don't buy many mixes. Um, I feel like people are less likely to buy a club mix than, they're, than they are to buy something that really stands on its own. I mean, I think the Moody Man benefits, A, because it's not a it's not a dance floor mix. It's something that's going to sound really nice on Sunday morning with your coffee and the newspaper. Um, and it also makes me think of the the DJ Koza remix, uh, mix CD last year, which was also a DJ Kicks, if I'm not mistaken, where Koza really remixed or edited almost everything on there um, to make it, you know, a unique experience that you can't get anywhere else. You were saying that Moody Man edited like 10 tunes on his mix, right?
2: Yeah, it says there's something like 10 uh, Moody Man re-edits on this, but it doesn't say which tracks they are. Um, But uh, certainly that gives it an air of exclusivity. I was thinking back when I was thinking about mixed CDs you last year uh, spoke to Jeff Mills about Exhibitionist 2 his mixed uh, DVD um, tell us about that
1: his second mixed DVD actually right, right. Um, The I, I think it had been about 10 years since he'd done the first one and, and it was interesting I mean it was al- almost an instructional DVD in a sense I mean the first one had been if I remember correctly, just him and like three decks and a CD player, right. I think with the, the cameras on him and he just whipped through a set, you know, an improvised set. And the idea was to, for the viewer to really see what goes into the artistry of the DJ and see what he was doing to be able to focus on his hands. Um, I mean, Jeff Mills, nobody works a mixer like Jeff no. Mills does. I mean, those, those fingers, you know, like tweaking the EQs. It's something worth seeing. So on the new exhibition is two, um, he kind of expands on that idea, and so there's there are several mixes. Um, he's jettisoned the the turntables and now he's using CDJs. Right. Um, to me, the most interesting portion of the mix or the, of the DVD is is the first mix where he's on the CDJs. He told me that he produced a bunch of music exclusively to use in this set. Um, so he produced a bunch of tracks that would work as basically component parts of a mix right um, and he burned them to cd unlabeled and he filled up wallets with like 50 or 100 of these cdrs and then he stepped up to the cdjs and he started mixing and he would grab these things and of course i mean he'd produced them so he knew what was he knew the music but he didn't know what was on any given cd that he was grabbing and and he mixed on three or maybe it was four decks, I don't remember now, it, you know, an, an improvised session using this stuff. Um, I thought that was really fascinating. It's something that kind of only Jeff Mills could right. do.
2: I mean, did it look like the kind of thing... It, it sounds to me like he was trying to take the mix CD and move it forward in this era that, as I say, you can just get mixes from SoundCloud of everyone. Um do you think that's that was what he was trying to do? He's trying to get away from that, the ubiquity of mixes and create something more um something different, something more worthwhile or I
1: mean honestly with with Jeff Mills, I think it's hard for anyone who's not Jeff Mills to know exactly why right. he's doing what he's doing, you know? Um he, he had a number of other segments on the mix. I mean, one of them was a long piece in which he was accompanying a a dancer, a modern dancer. Um which I guess if you're a, a dance a uh, fanatic that w- could be super fascinating it, to me. It was it was the least successful part of the mix. There's another one where he goes head to head with a drummer, um, like a, a, a actually like a, a jazz slash jam band drummer. I can't think of the guy's name, but he plays in in uh, the Trey Anastasio's band, Trey Anastasio of Fish, right? Which is an interesting kind of collision of scenes, you know, like jam bands meet Detroit techno, and so he was. Play, if, if I recall correctly, that was him on eight hundred eight or nine hundred nine, and uh, and this drummer improvising live. Um, to me, there was a uh, the limitation of the DVD is sort of when you're going to sit down and watch that.
2: I was going to say um, I love Jeff Mills, but there is no way I'm going to sit down to watch a DVD of someone mixing. I mean, it sort of comes back to this: what what I want i think from jeff mills is um an hour two hours of him mixing his tunes other people's tunes that i can buy as a download or or listen to on online or something like that i i think it's very interesting but and i'm glad actually that someone's you know trying to do these new things but i just don't see myself sitting down on my sofa to listen to or to watch someone someone doing that
1: Actually, a colleague of mine told me that she and a friend recently sat down and, and watched the Jeff Mills DVD in its entirety. I'm impressed. And and sounded like they really enjoyed it. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to, to to naysay the entire no, project. Um You and I are dads. Maybe it's just a th- I, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> we just need to wait for our kids to get a little older and then we plop them down. We watch Jeff Mills. We, you know, learn about DJing. Um, yeah, who knows?
2: So, Philip, what have you uh, particularly been listening to this week?
1: Uh, I've been listening to a ton of a new album called On Vacation uh, by an artist named CFCF uh Michael Silver, out of Montreal. The album's on international feel, which is a label out of Ibiza, in fact, um, run by a, a, an English guy who used to be based in Uruguay. I mean, sort of all over the map, literally and figuratively. CFCF's a, a really interesting guy. I mean, he started out doing kind of mid-tempo-y disco house really nice really you know really, really nice stuff um but he very quickly kind of developed into i mean he went through sort of a phase of doing more philip glass inspired productions lots of arpeggios um he works a lot of times inspired by visuals one of his one of his albums was kind of inspired by brutalist architecture. Another one was inspired by Vim Vendor's notebook on city and clothes. Um, and he, every song was kind of dedicated to a certain object like keys or a coffee cup or a turnstile. And there were these little minimalist arpeggiated figures, um, Recently, he's been doing a lot of Balearic stuff, um, influenced by, you know, the sort of chill-out music from Ibiza from the 80s and 90s. He's really into sort of Japanese electronic music. He's uh, really into Prefab Sprout. He's really into the Fairlight Fairlight Sampler and things like that. And so his new album, On Vacation, is basically very sort of new-agey, like acoustic guitars run through enormous reverbs, fairlight, coral pads, um, marimbas. It's it's very balearic. Um, it's almost cheesy, but to me, like I don't see anything like I said in my in my review for Pitchfork. I don't see anything ironic about it. To me, it's very very heartfelt. And I think it's a it's actually kind of a cool opportunity to get beyond one's own prejudices or stumbling blocks like he makes very judicious use of slap bass. I'm not a slap bass fan. Usually no. slap bass is a deal breaker for me. <laughs> and in this record, I'm like, you know what? Bring it on. I, give me all the slap bass you've got, because it, it works.
2: Can I ask a horrible question? Please. Where's the line between this and Tropical House? Oh,
1: that's probably a, a question for another episode. But right. I mean, Tropical House is... It's insipid. It's bland. It's... um. <sighs> Where do I even begin? I mean, the the rhythms aren't (laughs) there. The sound design isn't there. The production isn't there. The sense of history isn't there. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like a garage band beat and and a pan flute sample. And um, yeah, like there are surface similarities. But to me, if you spend any time at all listening to CFCF um, and what he does, the musicality of it speaks for for itself, which perhaps is the reason that he was nominated for a Grammy in the Best Remix category.
2: Well, exactly. What a surprise that was! Um, it's uh, what. Tell us about it.
1: Well, it, it was for uh, a remix he did of Max Richter, the classical composer. I, I don't recall offhand the other uh, nominees in the in the category, but I think they were all fairly. Standard sort of EDM commercial dance, I know it was a surprise to him as well. he He woke up I think late that day, and I saw him on Twitter, like, "What the hell is going on <laughs> and um yeah, I mean the the award ceremony, I think it's next week, so I don't maybe it will have been announced by the time this podcast is out, but um yeah, I, I think it's great that he got nominated because so rarely does anything really interesting and unusual happen on the Grammys. good for him
2: I mean, do you think this one actually? Uh, have a large effect on his career i mean the grammys is a pretty big deal um i've certainly seen um a few pieces i think there's a new york times piece uh where they were talking about it do you think it's really going to help him to um get to that next stage
1: yeah i don't know i mean i i don't know what the next stage is for him because i i think he's such an idiosyncratic artist anyway to his credit you know i think um he did a couple albums last year um, one for international feel and one for For I don't remember the label now both of them kind of on this balearic tip and I hadn't paid really close attention to him before I would listened to his music and and all of a sudden I listened to those albums back to back and I was like wow this is this guy really knows what he's doing and he's doing something different than what anybody else is doing I need to to pay more attention to cfcf and so yeah hopefully he'll just keep going down that that route
2: shall we listen to something
1: yeah let's listen to uh something from on vacation What are you uh, what are you excited about this week?
2: Well, this week I'm particularly excited um because we have got an exclusive for the podcast and I do dearly wish I had a button I could push. Exclusive. Exactly. Exactly. Um but that that did just as well. Yeah, we have an exclusive. Um that we're going to play a bit of uh, it's by Zora Jones and V 1984 and it's called uh The Zone. Um and Zora Jones uh, is a Barcelona producer that we both really like. You reviewed "A Hundred Ladies" uh, LP for Pitchfork, um, and uh, this track I think is a really good example of what of what she does. It's sort of footwork-ish I would say but it's got a lot of it's very musical and she does one thing that I really really like is um the way she uses the bass she has these sort of really melodic and rhythmical bass runs which kind of punctuate what she does and they're very um it's a really nice touch it means for example the drums aren't overly to a four they aren't overly fussy but you get a real rhythmical element from the bass a bit like um the Devil remixes that Wiley used to do where he'd make these, these these grime tracks and then take off the drums and they were propulsed by this bass and I kind of see a little bit of, of that influence there um, and at the same time as I say with some really beautiful m- melodies in there as well.
1: It's funny that you mentioned both of those because I, I hear Zora Jones and I think that I mean to me she takes bits of footwork and bits of grime and she's making something that isn't either one I mean it's really her own Own thing, which is pretty rare.
2: Exactly, exactly. You can hear the influences of both, but I would struggle to say exactly what genre this is, which is a very good thing. Let's listen to a little bit. (laughs) back come back 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 come back 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 back back Jones and B 1984 with The Zone are uh, exclusive. So, thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, she's actually got a new single out this week on Fractal Fantasy called Ruby Fifths. And her partner in Fractal Fantasy, Sinjin John Hawk, uh, has done some production work on the new Kanye West album, which is uh, on the track Wolves. Um, so, Philip, what have you been listening to? Again? Well, the other
1: thing I'm, I'm really into right now is the Cavern of Antimatter. Uh, which is a new, actually not that new, um, they've been around since 2013 or so, but it's a, the new-ish band from Tim Gain from Stereolab. It's a trio, it's Tim Gane, Joe Dilworth, who was the original drummer from Stereolab. He played on Pang and a few of the singles up around the 92, 93 era. And then a guy named Holger Zapf, who I really can't find out much about him. I, I kind of Googled around and he's a synthesizer player. Um, I think he's built as a synth wizard in the PR. The only thing I could find is that he worked at a German distributor that was distributing like, um, Buchla synthesizers, which is pretty, you know, high end modular, right? Like serious rocket scientist grade synthesizers. So I don't know much more about him, but this is their, their trio. They did a, an album in 2013 or 2014, that came and went tiny pressing on vinyl. Uh, this on duophonic is their real kind of coming out. Um, and it sounds very much like Stereolab, as one would expect and hope. Um, it's kraut rocky. It's motoric. It's all of those keywords. Uh, it's very stripped down. No vocals except for one song with Bradford Cox of Deer Hunter. Um, and it's and it's fantastic I mean they're they're long some of them are like 13 14 minutes and they just lock into these grooves um, very noi uh, Noy influenced but also I mean there's there's variety there too there there's there's a bit of craft work in there there are a few that are almost kind of electro um, the tempos are all all over the map some songs are in seven eight time and uh, yeah it's just it's really nice to hear them you know, to hear Tim Gain back to doing stereo labby things.
2: Speaking of someone who uh mourned the day Stereolab split up, who could frankly listen to Stereolab uh for years. Um does it scratch that itch? That Stereo Lab itch?
1: It totally scratches that itch. I mean the first song on the Cavern of Antimatter album starts out with this ringing E chord and there's a sense of deja vu and it's like, where do I know that from before? And I went back to Mars' Audiac Quintet, which is one of my favorite Stereolab albums and something like four or five of the songs on that album begin <laughs> with almost exactly the same sound, chord kind of production and everything. So yeah, it definitely scratches, scratches that itch in a big way. last uh, recommendations for us this week?
2: Well yeah, it's um, a track that actually slightly reminds me of, in a strange way, Fatima al Kadiri, which we were talking about last time um, which is it's by Throwing Shade uh, it's called Hashtag IRL um, and it's from House of Silk which is the first EP for uh, Ninja Tune and um, one thing I really like and it almost goes back to what Grey was, was saying I, I like I'm quite happy for electronic music to have no purpose other than to make people dance. Some of my favourite songs are just like that. But sometimes I quite like it when you get conceptual electronic music. I'm sounding a bit like a prog rock fan, but you know what I mean. And that was certainly the case with Fatima al And this is the case, I think, with this Throwing Shade track as well. Hashtag IRL. Um, sounds like it's a kind of attempt to convey that sort of constant nagging loneliness of the sort of world of social media and um over the top of the tune she kind of says words like hashtag those kind of words we associate with social media um and there are these beautiful another thing in common with Fatima Kadiri is the synths are beautiful you know these really lovely kind of synth melodies again really nice kind of sounds and the first time I heard it I must confess I, I thought what on earth is this? Why is she talking you know, saying these words over there? LOL. The time? Exactly. <laughs> and then actually I, I kinda of thought about it, I was like, actually this does quite well convey the sound of, you know, social media a sort of melancholy social media, you know, when you're doing all this stuff and no one's paying <laughs> any attention. And one thing that really um surprised me, I guess, was that um She's got her own her own history. She's made a, a number of releases. There's one called there's a track called Sweet Tooth. It's really really good. But also she was the voice on Sophie's Lemonade.
1: Right, which I didn't know until no. until this came around. I I don't know if that was sort of an open secret or, or what,
2: but well, What really surprised me was I didn't I couldn't imagine a human singing on that song. You know, to actually suddenly find out a human was there. Was like...
1: Yeah, that's a good point. It seemed like something that maybe was pro- that, that was like a speech synthesizer.
2: Right, right, and then you're hearing that this 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 actual human being, uh, made that vocal, and there's kind of no reason why not. And also, actually, what what throwing shade does slightly fits into that lineage, that PC music lineage, that Sophie lineage of of particularly if you listen to her mixes, it's it's pop music but kind of subverted. And while to be honest, I don't think a lot of the PC music stuff has aged all that all that well. I think. um, what Throwing Shade is doing just because of those beautiful synth lines it sounds great and for example the second track if if you needed more convincing the second track on that EP is called Marble Air and it's a lovely lovely synth track some beautiful synth melodies and um, so I would thoroughly recommend that
1: well thanks Ben we will uh, leave you all with a little bit of Throwing Shade and um, thanks very much for listening to Line Noise this week like
2: like 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 Night like
0: night like like, lighting like, I hurt you lighting like. I hurt lighting like, searching,
2: I hurt searching, lighting like. Like, and I searching, lighting like. Like, and I hurt lighting and I hurt lighting I lighting and hurt like Thank you for listening obviously you can check us out uh, on Twitter at Line You can email us if you like, linenoisedpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're on SoundCloud, Mixcloud, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, TuneIn. Uh, and thanks, well, thanks as well for your comments, uh, for listening, for your comments last time.
1: Hashtag IRL.
2: Absolutely.